Hey, good morning, all. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. Uh, good to have you with us today. It's Wednesday, uh, Paul. I forgot to look and see the nineteenth of July. You know, I do this, Paul, like uh, you know, three or four times a week. I still forget to look and see what day it is. Uh, Doug Padgett here in Minneapolis, where it's going to be a glorious, glorious summer day, and uh, really excited, Paul, to have you join us. This is Paul McAllister. Paul uh, does a number of things, but is also the founder and the president of Global Leaders in Unity and Involvement. And uh, Paul, it's good to see you again. Uh, we we met a few months ago, and then had a brief run in with each other in uh, into each other in Washington D.C. So nice to see you today. It's good to see you too, Doug. How are you doing? I am hanging in there, my friend. I am hanging in there, uh, doing all right. I see Jim is already with us here from uh, from California. Jim is up bright and early, and uh, is a is a regular commenter. So good to see you too, Jim. Hey, um, <clears throat> Paul, we, we we like to start chatting about the about the weather where we live. It's just one of our little things to remind ourselves that there's a lot of disagreements in this world, but we do live under the same sky. So uh, yeah. uh, I told you Minneapolis is a nice, perfectly summer day. How are things in North Carolina? Well, uh, this morning it was a little bit rainy and uh, now it looks like the sun is coming out and it's uh, going to warm up here pretty soon. So I anticipate it will be quite, uh, uh, quite humid and quite uncomfortable for a while. <laughs> yeah, man, I'm with you. I was in North Carolina last week uh, outside of Charlotte and uh, at a festival that was mostly outside. And man, it when it's hot there, boy, it is just, it, it captures your attention, I'll say. It is, it is really something. Are you talking about Wild Goose? The Wild Goose Festival, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't there, but I'm familiar with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, uh, any year you can make it, you, you'd be a great contribution to that to that gaggle of people at the Wild Goose Festival. For those who don't know, it's a spirituality, art, and justice festival that uh, revolves around uh, Christian spirituality for some people, but also a broader range of what it means to live in the world is people that want to bring about goodness. So uh, yeah, come join us sometime at that festival. Uh, but speaking of all those good things, uh, Paul, the, the global leaders in unity and, a, and involvement, uh, tell us about this because uh, I am fascinated by the title and the title... Global leaders I get, unity I get, but this use of the word evolvement is such an intriguing word. And when we chatted yesterday, you know, b before this, um, to get ready for today, I didn't want to ask you about it because I wanted you to do it live and I wanted to, you know, feel the fullness of the surprise. So, so wh why did you pick the word evolvement and, and what does that, what does that get after? Well, obviously the word uh, evolvement is associated with the word evolution, which we know is um, um, uh, suggests what we all go through inevitably in life, uh, 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 which is change. And uh, so uh, when we think about uh, change and evolution, we think about uh, from the physical, uh, geographical, uh, geospatial context of uh, the movement of the earth. Uh, and how it spins on its axis uh, and how it even sort of toggles back and forth a little bit. Um, and we're all subject to uh, changes. We were just talking about changes in the weather, uh, for example. Uh, and so as we move from, from place to place, we're subject to different conditions which force us to change. Hmm. Um, and we're living in a period of change. If you listen to uh, some of the higher consciousness folks, for example, like Michael Beckwith or even Carlton Pearson, you'll hear them talk about how we're going through uh, a series, uh, a season of change in how we do things in life. And yeah. I believe that I was going through a period of change and evolution 
as I was leaving pulpit ministry, probably for the last time, even though I'm still a minister, uh, but I don't foresee myself stepping back into the pulpit as a senior uh, minister or senior pastor. Uh, and having been an engineer and, and an Air Force or an Army officer, I was in a place where I was trying to figure out what it is I really, really wanted to do with the balance of my life. And uh, fortunately, I had people in my household, specifically my youngest daughter, Rachel, who suggested to me uh, a name of an organization that included the word evolution or evolvement. Huh. Uh, quite honestly, Doug, prior to that, I hadn't thought about the word. I thought it was an old fashioned, archaic term, um, really? but it was that she came up with huh. and I went with it and it's been working for me ever since. And as I travel the globe and deal with other think tank organizations, uh, people are impressed with the title of the organization. Yeah, it's 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 really catchy, and and it, it I, I like it. one of the things that it did for me is it reminded me, like when I heard the phrase "global leaders in unity and involvement," my brain was wanting to say the word involvement, right? Mm -hmm. So unity and involvement, and sometimes when you just offer a different word as a surprise to people, it's it's like it's a powerful rhetoric rhetorical mm -hmm. pattern. Um, all right, you've been a pastor, and um, you've been a pastor inside of churches that have a history of being rather conservative, and oftentimes conservative churches and conservative parts of the rest of our culture don't think highly of evolution, <laughs> and uh, they uh, partly because they often don't think highly of change. One of the natures of conservatism is to conserve or to preserve or to keep right? So change in and of itself is always a bit skeptical. But this kind of idea that there's a change that's happening that's not deliberate by a single change maker who's in control, but rather the kind of change that comes over experience and pattern and many choices, some of which are intentional and some of which are unintentional, that has a different kind of thing to it. Um, what mm. was was that true for you? Was it was that true that the, that evolution and those kinds of words in the worlds that you were a pastor in? And tell us a bit about that context of where where you've been a pastor, that people look down on on the notion of of uh, evolution or evolving. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, um, I would say one of my best friends, who is a professor at Howard University in molecular biology and cellular biology. Um, uh, we would often talk about uh, evolution when he was uh, pursuing his PhD. Um, and of course, um, as a result of his scientific understanding, and he's also a minister, uh, we would get into these very serious discussions about evolution and science and faith. And, uh, and he, was, he became known in my mind as having said, um, it's just science, y'all. Uh, it's just science. And, 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 and so uh, I've never really had to push the issue of evolution in a faith context. It's really not something in my pastorates and in my ministry that has come up quite often, but it has come up in dialogue with others outside mm. of my own tradition. And fortunately, I've had a good friend like Dr. Eric Walters, who's been able to educate me so that when I do speak to the issue of evolution, right, I do right. have some sense of understanding about what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, and and what, what traditions have you been, have you been a pastor in? 
uh, principally in the Church of God, headquartered in Anderson, Indiana. Uh, that is where I, I'm, I, I'm ordained. Um, my mother and, my, and her mother were Church of God. My, actually, my maternal grandparents, our great-grandparents, uh, were founders of Church of God congregations. Really? Um, and so that's where I'm most rooted. My father was, um, when he was alive, was Methodist. Uh, and so Methodism and, and the ideals and, and teachings and theology of the Church of God really are harmonious and synchronized with each other in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of Wesleyanism um, and Wesleyan holiness uh, and, and Christian perfection, uh, yeah. these are doctrines that have sort of guided and centered my religious thinking for many many, many, many years as a pastor and even as a child. Well, I, I've known a lot of people in Church of God Anderson. Mm. And man, some of those people aren't comfortable with evolution and change at the level that you are. You, you must have been a bit of an outlier in, in that world. Did, did, you feel that, did you feel that way? Yes, uh, and not just because of that, but I think I bring such a different perspective. First of all, being African-American, mm -hmm. um, um, uh, even being a scientist or an engineer, um, that would be two. Uh, having a strong uh, disposition towards social justice and civil rights and human rights, and then having a uh, a vastly different uh, a perspective on life because of my global interests. Mm -hmm. And so, I would say the confluence of all of these things definitely tend to place me outside of what I think and what I have experienced to be the general context in which many of our ministries and operations tend to flow. By the way, let me say, that does not mean that the church does not have a global mission. It just simply means that as an individual, my thinking has expanded to the point where in many ways uh, it falls far beyond those with whom I have associated. And I would say that would oh, be yes. from coast to coast across the church, including race, or white and black, and even to some degree gender. Um, but I, but I'm very comfortable in my own skin. I'm very comfortable with who I am, and 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 what I've been able to accomplish up to this stage in my ministry and in my career uh, up to this point. And there are things, and there are many things yet that we still are trying to achieve uh, and aiming to achieve. And one of them, uh, optimistically, idealistically, Doug, would be to, to help the church foster a different way of thinking and understanding of itself. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason why when I left pulpit ministry as a pastor and founded this organization that we're talking about, um, I had that in mind with the name of the organization. If I might say, um, initially I was thinking of Christian leaders in unity and involvement. Mm -hmm. uh, but I was advised that it might be best to move beyond the spectrum of just Christianity because my worldview was larger than a traditional Christian worldview and pursue of the term global. And that is when Christian leaders in unity and involvement became global leaders in mm -hmm. unity and involvement. Mm -hmm. Which I guess also changes the acronym, you know, from clue to glue, which is a, which is a, a, a pretty good one. You, you know, that, that, that's something I find interesting in our conversations hearing you when we were in Oxford, England at the 
we were at this colloquium on Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. One of the, the the things that happens in Christianity, and I've spent my adult life working in churches and Christian organizations, and and, and this is one of the things that's always sat a little funny with me, is how church centric and Christianity centric Christian churches can become, P- partly because they believe that they're many people believe that their calling sort of sits at the center of the heart of God, and then it can make it seem as if the point of life, the point of humanity is somehow connected to churches, right? And, and, to, and to church life. I mean, I go to churches sometimes and they sing songs about wanting God to build the church, you know, o- o- over and over, kind of you know, re- repetitively asking mm-hmm. for this. And it seems to me that, I don't know, the Christianity that I got into was one that really was trying to say, hey, human beings that want to follow in this way, your calling is to live in, a, in the world and, and in the global context and not to be an outpost that people mm. in the world can run to to be safe from the globe or safe from the world. And I know people use world and all this stuff in, in a variety of ways, but, but that kind of overall perspective, I feel like is one of the great sort sorting questions for people, right? Do you feel like the church is the center of life or do you feel like humanity and the globe is the center of, uh, of, of our imagination? Do, do you, do you think similarly, or have you had different versions of, of that, that way of thinking over the years? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to be brief in my response, and um, I hope, and hopefully I will be a good panelist for you today, or a good discussant. But I do feel the way that you do feel, uh, Doug, in this regard. Um, here's the thing. Um, we say, uh, quoting scripture, that God was in Christ reconciling. Hmm. world unto himself. And oftentimes I think in church um, and within Christendom, we focus more on God uh, than reconciliation. I think this is one of the reasons why we have problems with race, um, even though we use the word reconciliation over and over and over again. um, We don't understand our humanity, our common humanity, our common interest and the variance and degrees of difference that exist amongst us. Um, Some of it is natural, some of it has been uh, created by man. And so God's interest is in restoring harmony and confluence and congregation, if you will. So if church would look at itself as having that mission, I believe it would be able to uh, help rectify some of the social ills. And that would go beyond just the issue of race but it will go towards all ills that we face right. and experience right. within society. So yes, I, I do seem to, I, I do think of things as, as you do. And let me add this. Um, I think it would also help us understand that the answers to all of our, our questions are not within one particular nation <laughs> or within one particular ideology, but, um, but require um, uh, a broader extended view of the world, which mm. is part of the reason why I think uh, the Great Commission says go into all the world. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Go into yeah. all the world. Let me go ahead and quote it so some folks who are listening won't get upset with me. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, but yet yeah, make, it's make disciples, yeah. all the world and connecting with people who have different understandings of how God relates to us, I think is a very crucial 
aspect of what we're trying to do with glue. We're just trying to do it from both a faith and a policy perspective at this juncture. Yeah. Uh, Did you always think, think about things this way or were there, were there, was there a particular season of life where you felt like, you know, an alarm clock was going off and you were waking up to these ideas? Oh, what a great question, Doug. Um, I think I have my parents to thank for that. You see, I've got a bunch of books on the shelf back here. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Um, um, I think I picked up that hobby from my dad as a child. So, um, but over time, just living, uh, uh, working as an engineer. I remember when I was a graduate student at Clemson University, Hmm. um, I had my first encounter, actually not my first encounter because even as an undergrad at South Carolina State University, uh, I had many Indian professors. Uh, But at South Carolina State, uh, they were professors. They were not colleagues. They were not peers. They were not classmates. When I went to Clemson, um, I had many uh, peers and friends and colleagues uh, who came from different parts of the world. And as a result of that, uh, they challenged my thinking. So we were not only trying to work on uh, control theory uh, and electromagnetic theory uh, and solid state device physics and quantum mechanics and all of that kind of stuff, wave theory and so forth. We were actually in our spare time Doug, having these intense dialogues about what we believed, mm. um, which is what I think part of the college experience ought to be. By the way, let me throw something in uh, to this conversation because that should be part of the college experience. This is why I'm so much in disfavor of institutions that are ideologically um, straightjacketed. I, I think we need to discourse in our universities rather than uh, cutting off and shutting down discourse. It doesn't make for good citizens. It doesn't make for good people. And it bridges, it does not, uh, uh, it does not foster the kind of commonality uh, of experience that we need. So that being said, I think um, one of my good friends named Nazim Singh um, was very, very helpful in challenging me. Uh, and he walked with a limp, mm. uh, something wrong with his right leg from birth. But even though he walked with a limp, his mind was astute, his personality was brilliant, and his ideas uh, were, quite frankly, far more advanced and developed than were mine. So mm. I had to learn. And I think yeah. that continued on. <laughs> throughout the balance of, um, of life. I've only been a hobbyist around issues of quantum physics and electromagnetism. And, uh, back in uh, like 2000, I was a pastor of a church for 20 years. I was a pastor of a church here in Minneapolis and we'd have a, uh, a Thursday night, uh, quantum physics group. And we would, uh, mm. at the time we'd order those CDs from, or DVDs from the great courses. And we would watch these uh, college lectures on quantum physics and then have a discussion group about the implication of quantum physics on uh, Christian spirituality. And that, of course, leads to electromagnetism. It leads to just a whole sense of how you could have two different realities based on the, the on size, you know, at the quantum level versus at the non-quantum level. And it was just so unbelievably helpful and mind-opening. And we were just all a bunch of amateurs, you know, reading, reading popular level of stuff. It just makes my heart pitter with a, you know, a sense of admiration, a little regret that you were actually in real classes, taking real lectures from people and, uh, and talking about that. And we were, we were having to watch it on, 
on uh, DVDs and and talk about it. But man, I just think that like that perspective, and that's why on on Thursdays uh, in in this in this podcast stream. We have a conversation with an astrophysicist named Paul Wallace. I don't know if you know Paul Wallace yet, but if not, I'd love to make the introduction. He's um, he's outside of Atlanta and teaches at a university there, and is a Christian and uh, and an astrophysicist. And anyway, I like that because sometimes our ability to think about larger issues, social structures, and I was a social scientist in college and stuff, so I like social structures and social systems and how we organize different people and people groups. But also, once you start actually looking at how things are made and what there is in the universe, I mean, that'll pop your eyes open in, in a hurry. You know, that, that makes you realize, oh, maybe our, our you know, problem-solution mechanistic way of thinking about the world uh, isn't, isn't all there is to offer. You know, um, oftentimes, I, when I'm at think tank conferences and we talk about of the future of think tanks. One of the issues I brought up is my experience um, when I was an undergraduate at Fermilab. Uh, come on, come on, you're at Fermilab? Oh. I, I, I was at Fermilab for Paul, summer. Paul, let, let me just interrupt and ask, have you ever watched a person develop a crush on you in live live action? Because that's happening right now. It's just my admiration is just deepening all that much more. So I'm about to fanboy for the rest of this conversation, but but please go on and tell us about your life at Fermilab. Incredible. Well, you know, it, it, it was interesting uh, to get an opportunity to work there over the summer with some top-notch physicists, um, uh, and we were just little, you know, undergrads, lowly undergrads. We didn't know anything hardly. Uh, some of us really hadn't even had the academic coursework to really understand what we were trying to do there. But by the time we left, uh, we understood a great deal. And uh, one of our mentors, our, our advisors, was a Nobel Prize physicist. Um, and he was the most generous, uh, most kind and humble human being I think I've ever met. And, uh, and that told me something as I was entering ministry at that stage, um, that it is quite possible and practical mm -hmm. to be a theorist, a scholar, a deep thinker, and one who posed questions about uh, the universe and its construction and how it was constructed and still have a, a, a high regard for people. Wow. Um, and, and so I learned a great deal from him. Um, you know, I was there as a member of the HBCU community, mm -hmm. but we had students also from the Ivy Leagues. And so you had this interface, uh, this interface, this interface, I'm sorry, between uh, white kids and black kids uh, some of whom had never seen uh, people who looked like each other before. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we challenged each other. We had to get to know each other. We had to cross the, uh, the Rubicon of some of our thinking about whiteness and blackness because we stayed in common spaces. Uh, so there was a great deal that we had to learn. But we also found um, that we had so many common interests beyond issues of race and color and economics uh, fused with this quest to understand how uh, the creator created his world and how it came into being and how to sustain it. Uh, so these are some of the thoughts that I have when I think about Fermilab and some of the comments that you're making about Good the great courses. Uh, 
um, yeah. 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 All right. So this is, this is awesome. Okay. So, so you're college, post-college, you're, you're, you become an engineer, which we can, we can talk about. And you're also moving back and forth in, in ministry things. I, I'm, I'm interested in that just personally, like how that, how that went, um, for you and, and also your experience, because sometimes those two worlds don't, um, understand one another. And, and and people can sometimes feel like I have no idea what you're doing over there. There's the thing you need or the thing we offer is found here, not not over in that in that other world. Did, can you just talk a bit about that? How how that went for you and and those decisions you were making and how you, because we talked yesterday and you've basically told me that you throughout your life you've merged or you you've moved back and forth between more of your vocational time being spent leading churches and organizations and then some of it working for Honeywell and, um, you know, and, and being a, a functional uh, working engineer and then code switching back over into the, into the ministry world and moving back and forth. So I'm just interested in all of that process for you at your younger years and then, and then through your life. Wow. What a question. Um, I did doctoral work. Um, both at Clemson and later at the University of South Carolina, um, and even beyond that in, uh, in theology and social science. And so uh, I'm very comfortable with answering this question because um, my experience has probably been vastly different from many people with whom I associate in in isolated arenas, such as religion or faith, or just in science, or just in social science. And I recognize that 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 I'm a kind of, um, I guess you would say, a Machiavellian creature of sorts. Um, it doesn't mean I'm Machiavellian, it doesn't mean I have his brilliance or anybody else's brilliance in those other arenas. But what I do is I look at the totality of things. And this is where my creative, a genius, if you will, uh, coming from the engineering side of things, uh, is 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 um, uh, manifest itself. Um, engineers build, and we improve. We look at the world around us um, objectively, and then we take into consideration the needs of the people around us. And some of these things can be abstract. Um, but when you try to um, reconcile, and this is where the theology comes into place for me, um, harmonize, reconcile, bringing things together, um, recognizing that we worship a God who is interested in bringing life together. Um, yeah, that probably has put me in situations where I thought a little differently, articulated things a little differently, preached a little differently, taught a little differently, always uh, perhaps looking for some new nugget when persons around me may have been looking for something more steady and more traditional. Uh, and that's been problematic. And so how, how, how I've tried to deal with that, um, especially in recent years, is to practice a greater degree of humility um, on a personal uh, level in terms of my relationships with persons. So at least they can feel comfortable with the person, even if the ideas might seem to be 
um, over the top a little bit. Um, I find that if people are comfortable with us as individuals, then that opens the door for them to pose questions and acknowledge where they don't know or where they need to learn or where we might be able to help each other learn based upon the uh, life experiences that we've had. At the end of the day, uh, it is about life experience. My yeah, mother, yeah. let me say this, my mother yeah, yeah. Uh, is not an engineer. Uh, she's not a scientist. She's my mom. Um, and I always tell people I was in Anson County talking to some political individuals there. And I was quoting my mother and saying, Mama's always right. So at the end of the day, it doesn't take a science degree or, or an engineering degree or a physics degree. Uh, some things just accrue over the course of living and walking on the planet. And when we have a um, uh, folks in our lives, as I'm sure you do and I do, uh, who can who can speak to us about life, uh, yeah. then I think it puts some guardrails on some of the eccentricity that yeah. we might explore and help to bring us back to earth so people can recognize what we're really all about um, and have respect for those things that we're trying to do. So I hope that answers your question. Oh, it's yeah, a kind of long-winded, meandering way of getting there, but I hope it answers your question. Well, I, I love nothing more than a long meander of of, uh, of ideas. It's it's where the gems gems are normally found. It's like going on a long walk, and that's where you start to find this truth. And, and I love this idea because fundamentally, human beings need for their experience to be human, right? Yeah. Like we can study all the other things, and we should, and it gives us great insight into what we mean. But if that's not in service of how we can ex how we can extend human flourishing where more people are flourishing on this planet in the experiences that it means to be human, then we as human beings are missing out on one of our great calls. The, mm -hmm. the animals and the plants and the, and the rest of the cosmos has its own thing it's going to be up to, right, uh, that's unique. And human beings have our own thing we have to be up to. And uh, the human flourishing is such a crucial, such a crucial uh, piece of all this. All right, I could talk and we'll sometime talk to you for hours about your background and, and what, what you've done and how you've done it. Um, but I also want to pivot a little bit in this, in this work you do, because we, when we met, it was, as I mentioned earlier, in Oxford, England at this week-long event, this colloquium on Christian nationalism, and you're on the, uh, on the board or on the part of the leadership of a group called the Dietrich Bonhoeff Institute, which is now part of Hebrew College, by the way. It's a really great. Um, and we're going to be doing a whole... Uh, podcast interview with with Rob and with uh, Or Rose at Hebrew College about all that. So, super nerdy stuff for people that don't know yet what we're what we're talking about. But you're you you work with this group called the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, which is how you ended up at this event. I think that's you know that that, that was your that was your connection. Why was that meeting in Oxford, where it was a colloquium of leaders from the United States interacting with uh, others uh, at Oxford? talking about the threat of white Christian nationalism in America. What got you into that meeting of all the things that you also do? Well, I think the idea to actually host the event at Oxford came from Rob Schenck's good friend Van Guyton, uh, who served as the chancellor for uh, the colloquium that we had there. So I, I, I think somewhere between a conversation with Van uh, and Rob, uh, I think Van probably challenged Rob. We need to do this. 
And of course, when you can speak on such friendly terms because you know each other, um, I think that makes a huge difference. So I believe that's part of the reason why um, it was held at Oxford. Number two, Rob had been a speaker at Oxford. Um, so he's, he's no stranger to Oxford. He'd been there before. Uh, there was a conference held uh, of the following uh, of the following week after our colloquium ended that I attended with other scholars from Europe um, about uh, post-Christianity um, uh, and, and how we understand theological uh, values across mm. the church um, that, 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 that gave me some insight into Rob's experience uh, with Oxford. Now, I would say the main question would be not just why Oxford, obviously it is a place of stimulation, high, uh, high rectitude, uh, high value and all of that. Um, um, I think he just wanted to hold the event in a place where it would stimulate deep thinking. Yeah. Uh, and questioning, which is what Oxford is known for. And I'm wearing a shirt right now that's got Oxford. Um, I have an Oxford logo uh, on it. This, uh, 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 this belongs to one of my uh, sons, uh, by the way. It's not uh -huh. something I purchased when I was there. I would say uh, the topic, um, Christian nationalism, is one that we uh, that takes us back to Europe at the end of the day. Um, and holding a conversation about white supremacy uh, and whiteness uh, in the center of a venue where so many of the ideas that were espoused at uh, during the uh, 17th century about whiteness and going back before that would have been a, a part of the rationale as well. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. I, for one, uh, feel that being at Oxford uh, was not just an opportunity, uh, but it was mainly a challenge to, mm. to, to bring something back to American shores uh, that is routinely discussed, but not necessarily commonly understood. Mm. And that is uh, our origins do not all derive from Eurocentric thinking and ideas, our culture does not derive solely from Eurocentric understandings of life. Um, and so there was a lot of that kind of discussion that I was anticipating, and some of that actually did, did happen. And by the way, uh, even when we were there, uh, we had an opportunity to have dialogue with my good friend, Stephen Sizer, yeah. who lives yeah. In the UK, and of course, he is an expert in issues related to Israel and Palestine from a theological perspective. So we brought him into the discussion to help enlarge uh, the conversation about bias and theology uh, and race and try to dig at the underpinnings of white supremacy and white nationalism as it is being expressed, not just in Europe and here in the United States, but in other venues around the world. And I think there's a YouTube video of you in conversation with Steven. Is that right? Did you, did you shoot a video with him? And I think I saw we that did. Uh, the other we day. Did. Yeah. 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 That's another yeah. excellent, another excellent piece. Um, we talk a lot about Christian nationalism here. We do whole trainings on, we've got a whole separate podcast and we have curriculum. I, I've learned a lot about Christian nationalism. And one of the things is that it doesn't have a single definition and that's helpful, right? Because it's not one thing. It's a perspective. It's sort of a, it's a worldview. When you think about and talk about Christian nationalism, 
and someone says, oh, you're going to Oxford, and this, this thing is about, you know, the threat of, of, of white Christian nationalism. And they say, I mean, I'm not for Christian nationalism or anything, because nobody, you know, nobody is, right? And they're like, but I don't really know what it is. How do you describe the what is Christian nationalism uh, question? Uh, Christian nationalism is not just a worldview, um, but it is a way of um, approaching people. And, and, and it is not just loyalty to one's uh, country and having an affinity for the uplift of Christianity as a dominant religion within it. It's more than that. It's, it's also the past and seeking to revive uh, a history and a legacy that was created from a Christianized uh, concept. So I would say uh, in lay terms, that Christian nationalism is a belief that government should be controlled uh, auspiciously by those um, who come from the Christian context, um, that others should bow uh, and acknowledge and be grateful for the presence of Christians, um, irrespective as to what their views might be and how they live. Uh, it's uh, um, it's the audit. Uh, it's an ideology of supremacy, mm. uh, a belief that a nation cannot hold together unless it is Christian. Oh, yeah. Yep. And, and, and that apart from the presence of Christians and the adoption or the misadoption of the ye are the salt of the earth viewpoint from the Bible, um, that uh, unless that is the case, that uh, people and nations and civilization is doomed. Yeah, uh, of course, uh, it is not. Yeah, well, that that is a great point because for a lot of Christian nationalists, their issue is not just the United States. They're not only trying to make the United States of America a Christian nation. There's a belief that this should be exported to all of the world. There's also a global vision for Christian nationalists. Like that's one of the the realities that people run into is that it's for some people it is very you know. United States centric, but not for the deep thinkers, the ones that are pushing this stuff, the real ideology behind it. They want to take over every nation in the world with a, with a Christian agenda. Like they're, they're up for Christianizing the whole kitten and caboodle. And Hmm. that's the point is that they want to not only extend and they think the United States plays a unique role in that and is the United States and Israel are the two nations that are sort of the exemplars for what should be happening around the rest of the world. So we have to get things right at home, we have to protect Israel, and then export this all over the world. So for some people, when they run into Christian nationalism, they hear people talking about like just fighting about school boards or prayer in school or chaplains in, you know, on a football team or football prayer. So it can feel like it's very small and that people are trying to keep others out. And that is true. There's a whole lot of Christians that want to just make sure that, or a lot of Christian nationalists rather, want to make sure that not everybody's equally participating. But that really sits inside of a larger global vision that is competing with other global visions. Uh, and and I don't know, I, anyway, I, I find that kind of interesting, right? That um, it's to some people, it's the making the world smaller. And for others, it's how do we expand this Christian view of the world to take over the entire world. Mm-hmm. That's, um, I do a lot of work in the interfaith arena at this stage. 
uh, sometimes I wonder how I got here. You know, have you ever been in places and spaces and you said, how did I get here? Uh, what brought me here? What, what, yeah. what? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so I, I find myself um, um, serving in several capacities that are interfaith that I would have never suspected would happen. But I'm so glad uh, that they have. And I'm speaking specifically of the National Council of Churches uh, and the Interfaith Relations Convening Table, where I serve on the Theology Task Force with uh, other scholars, as well as serving as chair of the Interfaith Caucus of the North Carolina um, uh, Democratic Party. And, 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 and so uh, it, it, it's hard for me to accept um, that other faith traditions, other people from different cultures around the world um, should be constrained by white Christian thinking and understanding. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, we talked about earlier uh, some of my uh, childhood and upbringing. I remember more than maybe 20 years ago, I was, I was in an airport. I think I was going to a conference or traveling on business uh, for one of the companies I used to work for. And I bumped into a Catholic priest. And so here I am, a young minister talking to a Catholic priest in an airport. He doesn't know me. I don't know him. But Doug, I tell you the truth. Uh, I had such an affinity for him as an individual because his thinking and his conversation reflected something that went beyond my holiness perfectionist uh, 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 white Christianized worldview that it, it, uh, once again um, I, 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 I learned the importance of appreciating the differences that we have mm -hmm. and valuing those differences and I guess I simply want to say I wish more people in this country, number one, if they're Christian, would live uh, in accordance with those values that that Christians espouse. That's number one. And the core principle is love, love of oneself and love of neighbor. Um, and, 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 and then springboarding from those two fundamental teachings um, of Christ. Well, we don't see enough of that in the world. Uh, but I think if we would see more of that, if we could foster and generate more of that through the kinds of dialogue that I'm talking about, which are interfaith, interreligious, cross-cultural, so forth and so on, then I think maybe maybe folk might be persuaded that a Christian worldview is the answer. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but to just impress um, those uh, ways of thinking about life upon people and saying everybody in the country has to think and feel in the same way. Well, that's foolish. Um, yeah. uh, it's obscene. And quite frankly, it's obscene. And if I look at my own history uh, as an African-American with deep roots in the South and understand where our problems originated as African-American people, um, I have to reject that out of hand, no matter, who's, no matter who espouses it, no matter where it comes from. Um, because my history is tied up with the people who I know best and the yeah. people who nurture and taught me best look like me. Mm -hmm. And so I have to affirm uh, them in oh, yeah. those things that I pursue. And that means appreciating 
the differences that we have, valuing the learning experiences that can come from each other, uh, and not allowing any ideology, and certainly not white supremacy, white nationalism, to be the dominant motive or motif in the world. I will crush it if I had a hammer. There was a song that we <laughs> right years and years ago. You had a hammer um, in the morning? Mary. Yeah, if I had a hammer, I'd hammer in the morning and hammer in the evening and hammer all over this land. Well, we've got to hammer out that type of yeah. uh, thinking because it's hateful um, yeah. and it deprives people of their full humanity. Yeah. I remember my early, I mean, in my early days of Christianity, um, I wasn't raised in the in Christian life or church, had no experience at all and got into it when I was 16, 17 years old. And one of the first groups of people that I was around were people that did interfaith work, uh, interfaith work around the world. And then I realized there were like two different approaches to interfaith work. Those who were engaging in interfaith work in order to convert those that they were in conversation with. They'd work in Indonesia, they would work in China, they would work in, in then, you know, at the time, the Soviet Union. And the purpose of that was evangelism, right? And then there were others who the purpose of their interfaith life was to learn and to grow themselves and to take the truth that they find in other cultures and other religious traditions to expand the understanding of Christianity. And I really started to like that second group more than the more than the first group, first group for all kinds yeah. of reasons. And I remember somebody in uh, just post-college, I think, from that second group that said, hey, look, our point is to engage with the rest of the world because even if you get Christianity as right as humanly possible, there's still missing elements. Mm. God still has truths for all of us that have to be found in the other places. And they start quoting passages, you know, Jesus saying things like, you know, there are children of other, or we have sheep of other pastures. And when you right. go into the world and you make disciples, that's not to convert them, but it's to engage with them. And what does it mean to be disciples? The disciple-making act is a co-creative act as you travel into the world. Like just a different view than the convert them. It was, there are things we all need and the more we can exchange. And, and so I'm just wondering if that hits with you because I'm hearing you describe like, well, people are telling you that the world is, you know, you have science or faith or all these, and you're like, well, I think they all have, <laughs> I think they're all part of the, you know, I, I realized that as a, as a, um, as a theological category, I want to be an allist. Like I want all of it. I, I just think uh, my, my theology needs to be based on allism, right? Yeah. Uh, that all the ideas and all the people and all the cultures, that's what's the fabric of this. Um, yeah. So anyway, I'm just interested in your thoughts on, on all that. As you were talking, I thought, yes, and people used to say the world is flat uh, until we learn better. Uh, and so when we learn better, we do better. And, uh, um, um, you know, many uh, persons who I know um, read Howard Thurman. I read Howard Thurman. You may have read Howard Thurman. Oh, yeah. And, um, of course, his uh, seminal book, he wrote many books, but the one that most people are familiar with, Jesus and the Disinherited, he talks about his conversation in India, uh, where um, uh, he has this conversation um, um, uh, surrounding the supremacy of Christ uh, and the supremacy specifically of Christianity in the world. Um, um, I want to say this. Um, I think in the way that uh, Howard Thurman might think, I'm no Howard Thurman, okay? So let me 
sort of retract <laughs> the way I express that. <laughs> okay. Um, I, um, I believe that how he thought about the world was precisely how we should think about the world. As you've said, in the co-creative aspect of life mm -hmm. with other religions. Now, this might sound like heresy. Uh, this will sound like heresy to some people uh, who are listening to this conversation, particularly those who believe in, I believe it's John 14, 16, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I was, I was taught that, but everyone was not taught that. Why was I taught that? I was taught that because my parents taught me that and their parents taught them that and their parents taught them that. But what about the guy who lives in India? Okay. What about the person who lives in, the, in different places in the world? Does God not have a plan for them too? And some would say, well, our mission is to go into all the world and make sure they understand. Yeah. Uh, but, but understand what? What is it that we want them to understand? Why is it that we cannot also learn to understand? Why is it that we have to in, in, in embolden ourselves to promulgate our way of thinking and understanding upon other cultures uh, as if to say they have no, th no insight, no understanding, no revelation from God at all. Yeah. Um, and this is why I bring up Howard Thurman because uh, I think he tried to bring people together from across these many different cultures and different experiences to uplift uh, something that is far more beautiful. And that reminds me of something. Uh, when we lived in Minnesota, my family and I, uh, when our children were small, uh, I attended a concert in Minneapolis. And it was a concert of, um, of a mixed group of singers from different uh, races uh, and churches. And as much as I love to hear black gospel at the church we were attending at the time, uh, I discovered as a musician and from a family of musicians, mm -hmm. uh, there's something far more beautiful when people get together and they sing from the experiences and of the, that are shared cross-culturally. So mm -hmm. when you're singing some Indian music and you're singing some uh, Japanese theme songs and you're singing some African-American songs and then you're bringing all of that together, uh, that's the picture of heaven that I want to see on earth. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And, and, and that and that's what I define as um, as expressing truth. Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. In ministry and in all that we do. And so that's my aspiration at this juncture. Uh, I don't mind hearing those who want to talk about Jesus. That's that's fine. I, I'm a Christian. I understand that. But I'm not just a Christian. Mm -hmm. I'm a human yeah. being. Yeah, there is. Yep. Others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, and man, that, that is, you know, there's a, a big arguments inside of Christianity arguing about the, the, the nature of Jesus, the, the divine and human nature of Jesus. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why we, we end up in this bizarre conversation. Yeah. Um, but there's moments where you think, I, I think we need to have that conversation about ourselves. Like, Hey, remember, you're a human being, right? Like that's the that's the first most fundamental thing. The beliefs, the traditions, the ways, that is something else. And I actually just have a view of that whole, you know, that whole John 10, 10 thing, way, truth, and the life that is like, I think Jesus yeah. is saying. Thank you. Ev uh, everybody gets there. I mean, if you end up there, you, you've just gotten there in the same old way that human beings do it. 
the same way I got there. I think that's what Jesus, uh, anyway, that's how I choose to interpret the I am the way, the truth, no one gets there except through me is like through the same way that I got there. This is just how human beings do it, right? Like, uh, I think that's a, I think it's a, uh, a commonality narrative um, that Jesus was introducing as opposed to a separating narrative. Um, but you know, that's, that's some of the fun that some that we get to do with, with ancient statements and texts and words is we get to, we get to play with them. We get to interpret them. But what we do know is we live in a really complex world that also feels a lot like itself. Like when you go places and you travel and you're with people from radically different perspectives, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and we live in such a divided country for all kinds of reasons and such a divided world for all kinds of reasons. And yet that all defies the actual lived experience that we, that, that we have, right? Which is there's always something good to know and to learn. No one, no tradition, no faith, no period of time can, can know all the important things. I feel like we've lost some things in our current day that we might not even know that we're there. And I don't know, 50 and 100 and 300 and 1,000 years from now, there's going to be truths that people are embracing and felt like they've known their whole life that we have no clue of, you know, <laughs> whole realities. Like we, we're sitting here having this conversation about quantum physics and electromagnetism mm-hmm. and the Fermi Absolutely. lab. And, you know, yes. your grandpa didn't have any of those conversations, right? <laughs> he didn't know anything about any of that stuff when he was a kid. He wasn't, he wasn't in that because that's just how it is. I, I don't know. And there's such a scarcity model and such a limitation model and such a, um, a heroes, villains, and victims model that I, I don't know. It just feels like, when I talk, when I talk to people like you and meet people like you, um, and that's why when we met at Oxford and you, you know, it was a very odd kind of meeting of how we could be with each other and meet and, you know, cause these events like that are just that way. The, the things you said in private conversations, just a couple of uh, the things you said in your presentation, I'm like, all right, that guy, he is on to something. You know what I mean? There's just a way that you sort of hear it. And it's not even a lot of what someone says where you go, I think they're tapping into that same sort of vein of, of life. And so I just so appreciate you being willing to be with us uh, here in this situation and, and, and talk today and tell people about global leaders and unity and involvement. Um, and, and anything you, people should know about getting involved with you or following along in what you do and keeping up on all of this? Well, uh, we have interns from different countries and some here in the country um, as well. Um, we have interns who are from Ukraine. I've traveled to Ukraine quite a bit. Uh, over the last uh, eight to ten months, um, and um, and it was specifically to be in solidarity with not just them but even others whom I've met in different venues in my travels with uh, with global leaders in unity and involvement. Uh, we're in the process of looking to create um, a journal for young scholars uh, who want to publish their works and may find it a little uh, challenging to get into some of the. Um, more traditional and prestigious uh, publications, but they have something to say. And so we're trying to create a venue and a forum for them. If anyone wants to be involved with working with young scholars, uh, such as those whom I mentor, some are in the legal profession, some are in economics, uh, some are in the sciences, um, we welcome all comers. Um, I would also say this, um, Glue was fortunate to be able to work with some young scholars to present a policy brief to the uh, Think7, which is the uh, Think engagement arm of the G7. And fortunately, that policy brief was accepted and received by the G7. And it dealt with some of the things that we're talking about, but from a human rights perspective. Right. 
So I would simply say for those who want to support GLUE, um, you can go to our website, which is glueinstitute.org. You can certainly contact me. Um, I'm always looking for people to help out and help build the organization. We're still small, uh, but I think we've done a great deal over the last few years that we're very, very proud of. And we just want to continue to expand our reach and influence. Um, we have an opportunity often to speak at conferences, not just uh, serve on panels, but actually present um, our policies and ideas. Uh, and so we're looking to continue to do much, much more of that. And um, finally, I will say this, as a way of uh, inspiring those who have aspiration, um, I would say, uh, think big, because Blue was nowhere on my radar. And uh, as I've told you, uh, when I started Blue, uh, when the idea first was given to me and planted in my membranes, um, I, I was a little bit afraid of it. I thought it was something that was beyond my capacity to do. Um, and lo and behold, I found myself sitting in think tank arenas mm. with uh, CEOs and executives from major think tank organizations across the world. And I realized that all of my experiences that we've talked about uh, from being at Fermilab and being uh, in, you know, with Honeywell Labs and being with mm -hmm. other venues, all of that prepared me to sit in the room with other executives um, uh, and promote the ideas that we're talking about today. Uh, and so I would encourage people to not be afraid of the process of becoming and learning and journeying. It's taking you to some place that you may not know, but it. it's also taking you to a place that opens doors for others. And this is really the main purpose for Blue, is to pave a path for future generations of leaders who can take us to places of evolution and change mm. that maybe we can't quite see because we're locked into certain ways of um, certain patterns of being and existing in the world. And that may be fine for us, but it won't work for them. Yeah, so We have to do something that enlarges the and expands us the reach of our younger generations to help them be prepared for the future. That's yes. what Google is all about. So if you want to support us, please contact me. We'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. And as on point of a, you know, climactic finish, that should be, I don't want to let you go without asking, what do yeah. you know about being in Ukraine that we should know as people who don't have the experience you have? Is, is there something that's pretty evident to you that you wish more people would know and understand about Ukraine's situation? Um, several things. Um, I, I know that many of us would love to see the war come to an end. I want to see the war come to an end. Um, but when we talk about violence and aggression, uh, when someone punches you in the mouth and is threatening you, uh, then you really have no choice but to fight or flee. And the Ukrainian people have no choice but to fight. So we're helping them fight in order to end the conflict. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, I'm so proud of my colleagues and friends there, Maria Lindbergh, who helped me with the policy paper and her family with whom I've stayed, uh, Oksana, I could go on and on and on and on, Radana, Kate, friends of, that, I, that I have. They are proud people. Um, they are proud people. We should not use Ukrainians as a proxy for mm -hmm. our own benefit uh, in Western civilization. They are people of dignity and worth in their own right. And we should respect that, support that. Uh, yes, we need to end this war. 
And I think we need to end it decisively, but we need to end it in a way that is promoting what we're learning from the Ukrainian people, the spirit of survival, of thriving in spite of. We're learning something from them. They're not just feeding us because they're the world's breadbasket. They're nurturing us in what it means to evolve and shape human destiny because they refuse to yield and yeah. they come together as a people. Um, the final thing I would say about Ukraine is they respect their leaders but they understand the value of coming together as citizens. Mm -hmm. So what matters most is citizenship and unity wow. of the people, as opposed to uplifting a demagogue, like, like some in this country are doing with Mr. Yeah. Trump. That's right. Or some other figure of history. Mm -hmm. uh, what's most important about Ukraine is that, um, um, uh, um, when I was there in Kyiv, uh, I really did not want to leave. I found it to be such a beautiful place, uh, not just physically and aesthetically, um, but the people. And that's something I would appreciate uh, others knowing about Ukraine wow. as well. Um, there is a deep sense of loyalty to what is good, what is right, what is just, and what is fair in Ukraine. It's always been that way and it wow. continues to survive to this very day. That's why I believe God has allowed us to be centered on Ukraine because it mm -hmm. modeled what we need to see in people, in humanity, uh, and in country, and in loyalty and affinity uh, in all other parts of the world. So I'll stop there. I could say a lot more about Ukraine, but that's but that's enough. Well, thank you for sharing. It means a lot, yeah. And Paul, this has been such a great conversation. I look forward to to more and staying in, staying in touch and doing doing many things together in the future with you and Vote Common Good and the global leaders thank and unity and involvement. Thank you. All right, thank you, my friend. Thank you. Okay.